Hey, we're in our second to last week in our series, The Elements of Renewal. We're going to conclude this series next week, and then we'll move into our series on the book of Ruth for Advent. Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David, and I looked it up. It's something like the 40th great-grandmother of Jesus. Um, So we're going to go over that during Advent. So that's an announcement. This is also for those of you, particularly you men, you have a six-week countdown till Christmas. So I got you. You don't have to worry about it. Now you know you're not going to be the guy who's shopping on Christmas Eve now, right? So you'll be good to go. But if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to talk about a spirit-filled intelligence, a spirit-filled intelligence. So it'll be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I have a friend, his name is Joe, uh, Pastor Joe Marlin. He's in Gloucester City, New Jersey, and he says this, that Christians over the centuries have fallen into two gutters, he calls them. On one side, you have anti-intellectualism. And on the other side, you have anti-supernaturalism. So on one side, anti-supernaturalism focuses on the mind, on the head, and things that we can rationally explain. And that's more common in progressive circles, but it does happen in evangelical conservative circles too, where we do things like we doubt miracles because we can't explain them. We're speaking in tongues or prophecy Right? We can't explain these things. We, think we can't rationalize them. And so we end up falling into anti-supernaturalism. But on the other hand, you have anti-intellectualism on the other side. It's also a gutter. And anti-intellectualism, what it does is it focuses on the heart only. And that happens generally more in conservative evangelical circles where we just focus on the heart. So I love my mom. She's no longer with us, so I can pick on her and I won't get in trouble But I remember one time having this discussion with her, and she said, Evan, why do we need to study doctrine? We just need to focus on our relationship with Jesus. And that's kind of like how the anti-intellectual side sees things. I wish I say I could persuade my mom, but she's just as stubborn as I am. So that was was difficult. But I loved her, and she had a great relationship with the Lord, a better one than I have, and I can't really beat her up for that. But that's kind of what the anti-intellectual side says. You know, like, leave study, leave science, leave history, leave theology, leave that to, like, the liberals. We're going to take care of our focus on Jesus and our hearts. But the problem with that is that God actually made us more than just heads and more than just hearts. He gave us both. And so we aren't called to super, anti-supernaturalism on one side or anti-intellectualism on the other. We're actually called to what Richard Lovelace calls a spirit-filled intelligence. A spirit-filled intelligence. Richard Lovelace, in the book, the, his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, which is what we're basing this series off of, says this, we have sometimes forgotten that a spirit-filled intelligence is one of the most powerful weapons for pulling down Satan's strongholds. When you have a spirit-filled intelligence, you actually can advance the gospel. Followers of Jesus, we, as followers of Jesus, we must have a spirit-filled intelligence if we're going to advance the gospel in our world. And God has created the intellect, but he also moves in the supernatural with the intention that we put both of those things together. And a spirit-filled intelligence helps us discern the good from the bad, the true from the false in our world, and actually gives us opportunity in those moments to advance the gospel into it, into spaces you may not be invited into if you're anti-intellectual. 
spaces you might not be invited into if you're anti-supernatural. And so, we're going to look at the way Paul does things in Acts chapter 17. And we're going to look at how Paul uses a spirit-filled intelligence. We're going to look at his attitude, his approach, and his appeal here. So three A's, attitude, approach, appeal. First, let's look at attitude. Start in verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul actually, he's on a missionary journey. He's with Silas, his friend, for a while. But at a certain point, Silas and Timothy, they stay in this city called Berea, earlier in Acts chapter 17. And Paul moves on. He goes to Athens. Actually, he finds himself in Athens. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? It's like, who's this jamoke? That's basically, that's the, the way we might say things here. Or jabroni, as we say in Philly. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities or divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know that what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, so that's probably an exaggeration. I'm sure they went to work, but they generally spent time hearing new things. A spirit-filled intelligence gives us a compassionate attitude toward others. Paul, as I said, finds himself walking around in Athens, and he sees how dedicated the city is to idols or false gods. And so what he does is he reasons in the synagogue, it says, and then he goes to the marketplace every day, and then he ends up in front of the Athenian council at Oropagus or Mars Hill which is a hill in Athens. And there's a couple things here about Paul's attitude that I wanted to see. First, Paul's provoked in his spirit by idols. Paul was a Jew, and as a Jew, he was raised up with an aversion to idols. So you might think about the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 through 5 says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And in Romans 1, Paul actually gives this like scathing review of all humanity, and he said that the wrath of God is on idolaters. Now, young people, I'm not as old as this show, but I remember watching the Brady Bunch reruns when I was a kid. And the Brady Bunch, if you don't know, is a story of a lovely lady, and then she has three girls, and then she meets a man named Brady, who they have three boys, and if you know the story, till one day when this lady met this fellow, and they got together. All right, that was for those of you who are over 50. All right, that was your, that was your plug. Don't say it. Don't take care of you. I don't use illustrations that you understand. But they got together, and they became the Brady Bunch, this family of eight. And there's this one episode I remember where the Brady Bunch is vacationing in Hawaii. Did anybody remember this episode? They're vacationing in Hawaii, and Alice, the housekeeper, who by far is probably the best person on the show, Alice, the housekeeper, she finds a little stone idol, and she hangs on to it. 
And then at one point, she finds during a hula lesson, because that's what people do when they go to Hawaii, she throws out her back. And then Greg, the oldest son, he gets into a surfing contest. And Bobby, the youngest son, gives him the idol to wear while he surfs. But then Greg wipes out and he almost drowns. And they think that there's these series, these series of unfortunate events may have been related to the stone idol. Now, like, we kind of see that and we laugh at it, right? Like, that's silly, a stone idol, whatever. Like, Alice, she was like 70, 80 years old. She probably just threw out her back because she's not supposed to be doing hula lessons no matter where she is, Hawaii or not. But it might seem silly to us, but actually for Paul, idols are serious. Because idolatry in the Bible isn't just little wood or little stone statues. It actually goes deeper than that. Paul Tripp is a Christian counselor. We've used this quote before, but he says something like this. He says, an idol is a good thing that becomes a ruling thing. And when good things become ruling things, they eventually become destructive things. So money is a good thing. But it can become a ruling thing, as we see in our world. And what happens if that becomes a ruling thing, you become greedy, and that greediness will eventually destroy you. But when you have a spirit-filled intelligence, you're able to identify those good things that have become ruling things, and you'll have an aversion to those ruling things too because of their destructive nature. So you'll be able to say, money is good. I've got to be careful this doesn't become a ruling thing. Therefore, I need to put, play, sit, I have to put boundaries in my life for how I spend my money or how, I, how many hours I work so I don't run after this idol. But also notice that Paul, his aversion to idols actually drives him to the Athenians, not away from them. It drove him to compassion. Paul's spirit is provoked, but his heart is broken. Too many Christians, we see we have an aversion to the world's idols, and it doesn't drive us to them. We end up running away from them. See, Paul sees them in crisis, and he goes to them to reason with them. First to the Jews in the synagogue, and then he goes to the marketplace, and then he agrees to go before the council. But too often, you can identify the idols in the world And trust me, our world has many of them, and we can be provoked by them, and we feel this aversion to them. But rather than go towards compassion, towards the people who are submitting to those idols, we run away from them. So when you look at an idol in our country like politics, politics is an idol in our country. Some have said it's the religion of our day. You can identify that politics become an idol. You can be provoked by it and have an aversion to it, but many people end up, having, end up having such a distaste for politics and people who talk about it that they end up moving away from them, right? Anybody who has, or anybody has a different political viewpoint than you, you move away from them rather than towards them. And what ends up happening is you build that good thing, like politics becomes a ruling thing and it becomes a destructive thing when we build our lives around an us-versus-them mentality. It's us versus the people who vote for them. But the Bible says that we're all lost. So when we do that, we actually forget what the Bible says, that we're all lost. We're all in the same boat. We, but Jesus showed us compassion. 
Jesus had every right to move away from us. He is nothing like us. He's perfect and we're all imperfect. Yet Jesus came instead not to move away from us, but to seek us and to save us. So following Jesus with a spirit-filled intelligence, even in the presence of idolatry, will give you a supernatural compassion. A compassion that you can't muster up yourself. It's only one that Jesus and through the Holy Spirit can give you to move towards others, not away from them. So that's Paul's attitude. But if you look at his approach, watch his approach. This is really interesting. Pick up in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He's talking about Adam there having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. It's actually a quote from a philosopher or a poet. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. A spirit-filled intelligence gives us a discerning approach to our world. We need intellectual discernment empowered by the Holy Spirit to approach our world. Now, what's discernment from the Holy Spirit? What does that actually mean? It means that you have this ability from the Holy Spirit to determine what is good from bad and what is true from false. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying is like the Holy Spirit gives us discernment. When you hear somebody say Jesus is accursed, you're like, that's not the Holy Spirit. When someone says Jesus is Lord, you go, yep, this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us see that. So like young people, like when you go to school or you see something on YouTube, you need discernment to know what you hear if it's, or what you watch if it's colliding with God's Word and what God says or if it's consistent with it. You ever clear, like clear out your garage? Anybody ever do that? Clear out your garage or your basement and you have like three piles. You have the keep pile and you have the trash pile and you have like the donate pile. Right? A spirit-filled intelligence helps us approach the world and determine what to keep. And then what we need to throw out. And maybe even what needs to be donated. Right? Some of us, it's like beyond our pay grade, so we need to go, go, I don't understand this. Hey, pastor. Hey, godly Christian. Hey, brother or sister in the Lord who's more mature than me. Could you please explain this to me? It's above my pay grade. So in Acts 17, Luke gives us this summary, an outline of Paul's speech before the council. Right? It's, if you read this speech, it's about two minutes long. I have a hard time believing that it's not a summary because at one point Paul actually preached a sermon 
so long that somebody fell asleep and then fell out a window. And then he, he died and got risen from the dead. It's like a whole thing. You can read about it later. Right? So I have a hard time believing Paul actually takes two minutes to give this speech. So it's probably a summary or an outline. And so maybe Luke has like the director's cut up with him in heaven. We can one day find out more about what he said when we're in glory with him too. But we see him using spirit-filled intelligence here. See, Paul starts by affirming what they've got in right. Did you notice that? He compliments them about how religious they are. And then he points out how their philosophers and poets got certain things right. So he does in verse 28. But then he also rejects some of their beliefs in verses 24 and 25. He says the true God doesn't live in a temple. He's not served by human hands. But then he doesn't leave them there. Too many times as Christians, we can't compliment what the world gets right. We can't say, hey, you did a good job here, guys. This is good. We're only good at pointing out the bad. And then what we do is we leave them there. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul's approach is different. Paul shows them that how the God, the true God, has actually been putting clues out for them to find him. He created each of you, and he set the world into motion. That's basically what he said. And then verse 27, he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That's what theologians call general revelation. But there's clues about God all throughout creation. So if you ever spent time putting together a puzzle just to find out that there's a few missing pieces at the end, that's really frustrating, right? Because without the puzzle, it's incomplete. But if I came to you and said, actually, hey, guys, I have the missing puzzle pieces, that would be quite a relief. And Paul's saying, you got the puzzle pieces. You're right there. Good job, guys. But here's some missing pieces. I brought them to you. See, many Christians, I said, we can't find in ourselves to compliment what the world gets right. And we're too busy projecting motives on them. He compliments them. He doesn't project negative motives on them like we often do. And he doesn't build this us versus them approach. And because of that, when we do those kind of things, we aren't able to keep the good and toss out the bad. And we end up losing this opportunity to share the gospel with certain pockets of our world. So one example is how Christians often treat science. Ancient Christians referred to the natural world and the Bible as God's two books. They said God is the author of both of these books. So science, the study of the natural world, gives us ability to understand God, even if it's incomplete. And since God doesn't contradict himself, anytime there is a conflict between science and the Bible, we should be able to work it out. Because God wrote both of them. So young people, did you know there was a time where the Christians used to teach that the sun went around the earth? There was a time. Because they thought that's what the Bible said. But science came along and says, actually, the earth goes around the sun. And Christians freaked out. That's not what the Bible said. But who was wrong? Was science wrong? Or the Bible? Neither. We were wrong. And that's what often happens. We go, oh, there's a conflict here. There must be conflict in science and there's conflict in the Bible. I don't know how to make sense of this. If the ancient Christians are right, actually they work together. We just got to figure it out. The earth does revolve around the sun. 
unless you're a flat earth guy, it revolves around the sun. We know that. And when we read the Bible, it feels like the earth is the center of the universe. Actually, we go, hold a second, maybe they're actually trying to communicate something else. But many Christians see science as the enemy of the Bible. But a spirit-filled intelligence towards the natural world can use science to answer many questions about our world and can point out where the scientific community has gotten it right, but it's still missing some pieces to the puzzle. As much as science is good, it still needs the other book, God's Word, to answer questions about meaning and purpose to life or about forgiveness of sins. Another example is when, how Christians engage other religions. Before COVID, we were connecting with Muslims in our area. And I remember Jay Scharfenberg, who was a leader here for a while before he moved to Atlanta because his, his wife got a job there. It's very selfish of him. But he went there. But before then, I said to him, hey, hey are you concerned that any Christians, while we're interacting with Muslims, are going to convert? And he said, no. Because if they have the Holy Spirit, they won't be. See, Paul is able to engage paganism, even point out what's good and true without converting to it because he had the Holy Spirit to help him discern. Many Christians won't connect with people of other religions or even allow their children to because we're secretly afraid they'll somehow be converted. But a spirit-filled intelligence can engage with people from other religions without converting, can point out what's good and true and by doing so, have opportunity to share the gospel with them. You cut off any conversation by simply just not moving towards those people and trusting the Holy Spirit. One last example would be how we treat theology in church history. And maybe this is just me working things out with my mom after she's passed away. But many Christians don't think it's important to read theology or study church history or tradition because we made Christianity about what God is saying to me. Because a spirit, but a spirit-filled intelligence studies theology and church history and tradition to see how God has and is revealing things to other Christians across the globe and across two millennia. Has the church gotten things wrong at times? Yes, absolutely. Have our brothers and sisters across two millennia gotten a lot of things right? Absolutely, absolutely. But you have to know the Spirit. Here's why I bring up the examples. You have to know the Spirit well enough to discern the voice of the Spirit. See, if you don't know the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to discern His voice when He's saying, hey, this is good, this is true, or this is bad, this is false. Or even, hey, maybe you're just not equipped to answer this question, Evan. Go ask someone else. And this is one reason why you read your Bible, because God doesn't contradict himself. So if you hear something contradictory to the Bible, I'm not talking about where there's tension, right? I'm talking about where there's complete contradiction. It's not the Holy Spirit. But you have to know how the Holy Spirit speaks, so you have to read the Bible to know how the Holy Spirit speaks so that way you can know whether or not what he's saying here in the world is true. And this also is why you go to church and you're in community with other Christians. So they, whether those Christians are alive today or they've, and, or they've gone away into, off into glory like the writers of the Apostles' Creed, 
We can use their spirit-filled intelligence to help us discern when we're having trouble discerning ourselves. But the fact of the matter is, we don't trust the spirit to give us spirit-filled intelligence because we don't know the spirit well enough to trust him. We won't engage people. We won't use Paul's approach to engage the world really because we just don't trust the Spirit enough to help us do it. We don't trust the Spirit because we don't know Him. So we have difficulty engaging the world and so we don't have compassion and attitude towards others and we aren't able to have a discerning approach to our world. So we never end up having these opportunities to advance the gospel in those spaces. If you see science as the enemy of Christianity, first off, you leave the Christians who are in science just like hanging out to dry. But then you remove any opportunity to actually speak into that and speak to those people. So Paul then, he has an appeal. This is why you need this. This is why we need the attitude. This is why we need the approach because we need a chance to appeal to to people. Look at verse 30. To 34. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's appealing to them because he has a fixed day on which he will judge the world to, to, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Rapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. A spirit-filled intelligence also includes an appeal to believe in Jesus. I have a friend who's a pastor. He says to me, he says, Evan, you got to name the name. Paul doesn't directly name the name of Jesus here. Again, it's probably in the director's cut. But people believe. So he must have named the name. But a spirit-filled intelligence always names the name. It always includes an appeal to believe in Jesus. But if if Paul didn't have an an attitude and an approach of a spirit-filled intelligence, he wouldn't have even been invited to the council in the first place. Like if he didn't spend time, see, if his heart wasn't provoked by the idols, his spirit wasn't provoked and his heart wasn't broken, he didn't move towards them. He didn't have that kind of attitude. And then while he was approaching them, he didn't compliment them and say, hey, here's what you got right, guys. Good job. Hey, I just want to fill in some gaps for you. They, won't, they wouldn't have listened to him at all. He would have removed his opportunity to actually engage with them and to make this appeal. See, if you're anti-supernatural, you'll never have enough compassion needed to be around those who are different than you and speak up. But if you're anti-intellectual, you'll never be invited into certain places to speak up. And so we'll never be able to make an appeal to repent and believe in Jesus. And honestly, many of us have the attitude. We may even have the approach, but too many of us are afraid to make the appeal. We're afraid to make an appeal like Paul that says Jesus' resurrection is proof that God's putting the world back to rights. And because God loves the world and he's fixing it, he has to judge it. 
because of the idols that we have. He has to judge it. He has to judge us for the good things that become ruling things because they're destructive things. But he also appeals to them to come out from under that judgment by repenting and believing in Jesus. And so maybe you're here today and you need to hear that. Maybe you just need to hear that without faith and trust in Jesus, you will be judged by God, but you don't have to be. Repent and believe. Christians, do you see how this is better than the gutters of anti-intellectualism, anti-supernaturalism? It's actually supernaturally compassionate, right? Paul has a supernaturally compassionate heart, and he's intellectually discerning in his head. And he combines them to give opportunity to appeal to the head and the heart to turn to Jesus. You see how that's better than the gutters? So here's my challenge to you. A few things. First, many of us need to ask for compassion towards the world. Many of us need compassionate hearts. Many of us are quick to critique and to build up walls and project motives and do us versus them. So we need to ask God to give us a heart that breaks for the world, to see what the world's idols and our spirits be provoked, but to move towards them, not to run, run away from them. And then we also need to learn how to approach with discernment. You have to spend enough time in the world and in Scripture to be able to identify the world's idols and be courageous enough to point them out. But you have to spend time with non-Christians. Too many times, Christians, we just kind of get into our holy huddles. We get to our Christian schools. We listen to our Christian music. We hang out with our Christian friends. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but that's all we do? We're never engaging with non-Christians? We'll never actually be able to do something like Paul does here. And some things are above our pay grade, right? Some things you're just not going to be able to understand, and you're, unless you understand those things, you're not going to be invited to this certain spaces. My challenge to you is actually, like, read up on those things. But don't rely on your Google searches. Please don't rely on your Google searches. You're not a scientist if you spend five minutes on Google. You're not. You're not. And science, you laugh, but scientists will laugh at you. They'll be like, get out of here. I've seen, they've seen those Google searches. Come on. Right? we got to read up on those things. Read science. Explore what, the, what God says in, in the, about the natu- what we can find about the natural world and where God is in the natural world. Read theology. Don't just leave it up to the scholars. Read it. Don't watch your YouTube videos. Actually read guys who are legit. Women who are legit. And we recently have created a book table outside. Conveniently for me to plug this. We have put a book table outside where you can pick up books on things like cultural issues, Christian living, and theology. But here's my challenge to all of us. Regardless, make the appeal. You have to name the name. It's not enough to have the attitude and approach without the appeal. You have to make the appeal. So have the courage. Share the gospel. Invite somebody to the church. Invite somebody to your home meeting. And when God gives you the attitude and approach, he does so so that you can make an appeal. God has put you in people's lives so you can tell them about the gospel. Some of those people will mock you. It's going to happen. Some may not want to be your friend anymore. Most of them will probably think you're a little bit crazy, but they still love you. But you've got to be courageous enough to say something to them, to share it with them. But some will want to hear more. 
Some will want to know Jesus because of your love for them. Because of your attitude, because of your approach, they will actually listen. But if we're going to advance the gospel in the world, we have to have a spirit-filled intelligence. We have to have an attitude and approach and appeal like we see here in Acts 17. So I'm going to pray for us, and I want to pray that we have that. I want to pray that we approach the world this way, that we engage the world this way with this attitude, approach, and appeal. So why don't you bow your heads with me before we move towards communion.